Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody. I hope you're doing well. And thank you once again for joining my brother and I for what is going to be a fantastic show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, nine volumes available at Amazon, in ebook, in paperback, and at Audible, volumes one through eight are available, as well as iTunes and Amazon if you're into the audio gig. And I'm getting a lot of good feedback from you, my listeners, those who have partaken in my new book, UFO, Sightings and Encounters, Volume 1, W.J. Sheehan. If you hunt for that on Amazon, do it that way. UFO, Sightings and Encounters, Volume 1, W.J. Sheehan. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in there, folks, and if you're into that topic, and I know you are, go out and get a copy now. (laughs) And without any further ado, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? Pretty good, man. You know, uh, I'm inviting the listeners once again to keep praying for my wife, Paula, and... uh, the prayers are effectual. <laughs> yeah, I know you're doing the best to, the best you can to hang in there in a challenging time. Yeah, and uh, really that's all we can do, you know. Sometimes we are cut off from humanity, and we need to rely on a greater source of power. And uh, that's what I'm doing. You know, if my 45 sidearm isn't working... And I've got a bazooka in the Jeep. I'm grabbing that. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> oh, my goodness, man. So how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm out at the coast uh, this weekend, and uh, it's been so windy out here. You know, down in the south, we say it's blowing the dog off the chain. <laughs> Today looks a little calmer outside, but I will tell you, yesterday that Atlantic Ocean was angry. Uh Uh-huh. Just like unbelievable. Hey, you know, Kev, uh, it's just flying into my brain right now. Did you see the, did you have a chance to look at the video that our listener Rick from Ohio pulled up with the two spheres flanking that battleship? Funny you should mention that. Uh Uh-huh. Because that, I had seen that video before, Uh and that's actually what I'm going to talk about tonight. Okay, and before we get into that, let me just say, 
uh, Rick had commented in his email, uh, you know, basically on one of the my own personal accounts in my UFO book, kind of like, is this what you saw? And uh, I had a conversation. I called Rick and uh, I said, that is exactly what I saw. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these things are occurring uh, globally and in different uh, areas, different people are seeing them. And I just happen to be a person that saw them. Uh, but let me let me just segue right into you with the cryptids in the news and other oddities segments since we already cracked the door open. <laughs> now, just to be clear, you weren't uh, on the USS Kearsage in October of 2021 when you saw these, right? Well, I can't attest to the fact that I was or was not. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize. There is a dog man barking outside of my <laughs> studio here. It's not Martha. It's another dog man. Another dog man. So I apologize. I have no control over this giant dog man that's outside. <laughs> well, we'll have to live with him. He adds a little we'll live with it. He adds a little ambiance to the uh, It'll just remind us all that dog man is out there. <laughs> and he's coming for you. <laughs> he's coming for you. Yeah. So, I saw Rick's uh email our field correspondent from Ohio uh, after I already did all the work on this, um, but good good eye, Rick. It's same uh same thing I saw, which is super cool. And I'm going to talk mostly about the facts that were uh, described in a recent uh, Sun News article that was written by Henry Holloway. He did a good job of capturing things. And he also has some imagery that an artist had put together of these uh, two balls of light following the Kearsage that I'll put up on our website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, okay. under uh, this Podcast episode 146. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Kev. Now, did you right. did you just say that you saw? No, no, I saw the uh I saw the article. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I thought you saw two spheres of light and I was unaware of it. No, no spheres of light for me. Okay. Other than the uh lamps on the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Recessed lighting. I did, I did see a very large sphere known as a full moon last night over the Atlantic, which was pretty spectacular. Yeah, really cool. Maybe I'll put a picture of that up too. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so this article in the Sun, written by Henry Holloway, uh, was published at the beginning of uh, April this year, April fourth, twenty twenty-two. And it talks about the fact that this U.S. Navy warship called the Kearsand, which is uh, an amphibious assault vessel, right? Carries, looks like it carries a bunch of Marines and helicopters and probably some Harrier jets or whatever they're flying these days, uh, was cruising along in the Atlantic. And um, they had this uh, very two large uh, white orbs following them. And um, so, so they talk a little bit about this amphibious assault ship, the Kearsage. Oh, it's 40,500 tons. And this happened, this trailing of the Kearsage happened for several nights while it was on this training exercise off the east coast of the United States. So I don't know, maybe they were right here. I probably should have been 
looking out the window more, maybe I would have seen this mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. And um, the phenomena, which is described by some folks, they say uh, familiar with it. I guess that's the unnamed source of someone on the ship. Uh, said that it was odd and these menacing balls of lights are said to have been following around a half a mile behind the ship and around 200 feet above the ocean. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, Kev, let me say something that I didn't include in my account uh, in the UFO book. Right. The day I saw these two spheres of light, uh, they were at the one-mile buoy at Shinnecock. Oh, so over the Atlantic Ocean Yes, also. absolutely. Now, the one-mile buoy is exactly that. That huge can was a marker before the days of GPS, and still is a marker, of where the fishing fleet would begin their approach heading towards the inlet. Right. So they're running along the coast, and when they got to the one-mile can, they'd make a correction and that would direct them into the side of the inlet that doesn't shoal and that would kind of give them a a course to follow. Now on that day in the horizon, just dipping below the horizon at the time I had uh, my sighting was the fleet. And you, Oh, you are saying the naval fleet. Yes. You can, wow. if you're looking, and as I always say, people see because they are looking, and I am always looking, I could see the outline of numerous ships just below the horizon. Uh, sorry, Isaac, you know, the earth is round. Uh, <laughs> just below the horizon at a distance of who the heck knows what I'm looking at there, 20, 30, 40 miles and yeah, probably 20 miles, I'd say. Yeah, it was a, it, it was a good distance. And uh, you couldn't see the whole ship because, obviously, the curvature of the Earth. Sorry, Isaac. And they would just dip below it. So it's interesting. And I thought about that. I thought about that in the moment. Even though they are very far away from what I'm seeing, which was at the one-mile buoy, The thought entered my mind, as many other things were entering my mind, could these be being produced by the naval vessels in some strange way? And for what reason, I wouldn't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I would have immediately thought they were doing some type of search and rescue practice, right? You know, like, they got some crazy lights they can light up, you know, on some of these choppers. But it doesn't sound like that's what it was. No, there was nothing there, just the spheres of light. Yeah. So that's it's freaking weird, man. Go ahead, Dobro. Yeah, yeah. So so one of the folks that's quoted in this article is a guy named Dave Beatty. And Dave is the documentary filmmaker that produced a 2019 film about the Nimitz encounters. Right. So this is uh, he did the film in 2019. That's now very famous about the 2004 Tic Tac object incident from the Pacific Ocean where the Navy uh, um, F-18 pilots were filming and talking about the Tic Tac uh, over the Pacific, right? So he, this guy, Dave Beatty, did the film about it. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Beatty was contacted by now-retired U.S. Marines officer named only as Mark regarding the strange episode, right? So 
This guy, Mark, who's probably on that ship and is an officer with the U.S. Marines, doesn't give his full name. And he's like, what do I do? You know, what, what should I do with this information? So he calls the documentary filmmaker, Dave Beatty, that did the film on the Tic Tac from the Nimitz encounter. Okay. So that makes sense, right? Yeah. Just setting it up for you. So the Kearsage had been training at the time, uh, right before a potential overseas deployment. And while they were training, so this is back in October, uh, they were using some new systems that are designed specifically to take down enemy drones. And these weapons that, that they were using include what they call Ghostbusters-style backpacks. So these are systems that the Marines can wear on their back and they can, uh, you know, some type of handheld weapon that can see and track uh, drones and then uh, disable the drones. <laughs> Unbelievable, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they say that uh, you know in this article they say that pictures from the ship's public Facebook page show that they definitely had these capabilities on board at the time of this encounter. Hmm. So the you know where do these things show up? They showed up at night and they were spotted by the deck watch. And the deck watch, of course, as a soldier, you know, a Marine, immediately tried to get some type of thermal targeting lock on them to see what they were. You know, it could be an aircraft. So let's lock in on these with the weapon systems. I, I'm sure the normal weapon systems. But he couldn't gain any thermal targeting lock on them. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. And they say in this article that this was recorded by a, by a bunch of folks on the crew. Um, I haven't seen that recording yet, but, you know, I'm sure it's out there. Yeah. I'll keep looking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and Marines, so these Marines are out there training for an overseas deployment. They have these new weapon systems, anti-drone weapon system. So the Marines on board, they're not, like, immediately uh, concerned about this. Because they're thinking it's some type of surprise training exercise to try out the new weapons. Yeah, it would make sense, right? Like it makes it, perfect sense, yeah, right? It's yeah. the middle of the night. They're out here training, and they have these new weapons. So then, you know, some other part of the fleet launches these drones or the Air Force or whoever and, uh, the, you know, sees if their new weapons work. However, they discovered immediately that the countermeasures, these new weapons, did not disrupt the objects in any way. Uh-huh. And the objects, they weren't just out there on the horizon. They were actually swooping down uh, and following the ship. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. So this, this, uh, naval, this Marine officer, right, known by, known by the alias Mark here, told Mr. Beatty, the documentary filmmaker, that the USS Kearsarge radioed command about the objects and were told that the objects are not ours. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, but you can't blame the guys on the deck. They're figuring it's just a surprise exercise. Exactly. You know, somebody launched this. We don't know what it is. Let's just do what we're trained to do. And which is great, you know, shows you our troops are at the ready for whatever happens. Yeah, but when it doesn't respond, they're like, "Okay, uh, now what do we do? Now what do we do?" Yeah. 
So, you know, there's there's a chance here. So that's that's the article. I think it's super interesting. Now, there's always a chance that these are, you know, Russian or Chinese. Right. That's that's why they're they're saying to report these more now with the UAP task force and things like that. They they really have to know every bit of information. They don't want anyone in the services to be embarrassed or threatened by reporting this phenomenon, because yes, it very much could be otherworldly, but there is also a chance that it's, uh, you know, the enemy that this fleet is designed to protect us from. You know, and so that's an excellent yeah. statement, Kev, because the fact of the matter is, and people in the UFO community have been arguing this point for decades, that if you don't know what this is, and you think that hiding behind the uh, veil like the Wizard of Oz is doing you a favor in regards to not speaking about it or gathering information or giving credence to the testimonies, uh, you're not doing anybody a favor, including yourself and our troops and our people. Right. These things could be anything. We don't know if they have a nefarious uh, intent, uh, if they're completely docile, if they're natural, weather-related. We don't know. And this requires investigation. Right. But to just say, oh, you saw a weather balloon, come on, please. No, no. And, and Bill, you know, and I've mentioned it to, you know, some of our listeners that have been following us a long time, that I'm a techie kind of guy, you know, work a lot in high tech and, and certainly have a, a lot of experience with aviation. And I don't believe, you know, just for the record, I don't believe that the Chinese or the Russians have better aircraft than we have. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, just drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm talking specifically about aircraft. Yeah. I think we have the best, most advanced aircraft in the world. I think, you know, some of those enemies out there have better, for example, uh, you know, uh, ability to do cyber attacks and things like that. And that's what we see in the news, Mm -hmm. you know, where major systems are hacked and things like that. But when we look at like this, uh, going back to 2004, the Tic Tac episode off the USS Nimitz, perhaps this episode, you know, aircraft, seeing these aircraft or UAP that do these amazing maneuvers that we've never seen anything do before in history and we can't do with the aircraft we have, um, I, don't, I don't think that that's the Russians or the Chinese. I, I I have a tendency to think it's some other phenomena or something otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, Kev, Dad used to release uh, uh, over at the tower. They used to release weather balloons yep. uh, on a daily basis with uh, devices tethered to them. Uh, ain't no weather balloon looks like what I saw. <laughs> and uh, I don't need anybody to give me an explanation. I know what I saw and vividly in yeah, no doubt about bright it. skies over the ocean at close range. I know exactly what I saw, and there's no argument about it. I saw two balls of light with perfectly formed borders no sizzling, no smoke coming off of them. They were side by side, powder blue and white light kind of mixed. 
And mm-hmm. if you can imagine it, they were like swirling around internally inside of their shell. One would shrink and disappear with nothing, nothing to be seen. And then poof, it would reappear and grow in its dimensions back to the same size it was. And then the other one would shrink and disappear. And then poof, it reappeared and grew back. And they just sat there, probably, again, I think the estimate of a couple of hundred feet above the surface of the Atlantic would be accurate. Mm. I think I said 150 feet, but at at a mile, it's difficult to uh, measure diameter uh, you know, I'd say they're probably, you know, 150, 200 feet wide. Uh, very mysterious, very strange indeed. And I have never, in all of my years of observation of the heavens and of the earth and of the sky and the water, have never seen anything like that in my life. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll see it again. But it was certainly... Uh, a very strange phenomena. And the only thing I didn't see, these things didn't swoop down. They simply were not there, and then they were there. Hmm. They didn't come from anywhere that I could see because I was looking out over the ocean on a pristine day, and then, boom, they were there, both of them. Wow. So how that happens? You got me, bro. (laughs) You know, did they come out of some other dimension and simply materialize in ours and then go back into that dimension? I have no idea. Yeah, or they could have just come with huge velocity, you know, which then makes it seem like they just appeared, right? Right, and if you came with huge velocity, how did you you stop so quickly? (laughs) Yeah. How did you put the brakes on? That's what I mean, though. These, these, like that Tic Tac footage from 2004... That, you know, these things move, like, magically. Remember, too, they did, they disappeared from the radar and appeared, I think, I think it was 60 miles away. Yeah. Like, instantly. Yeah. Which... Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. really bizarre stuff. You know, 60 miles instantaneously. Yeah. I mean, again, we don't have any technology that I know of that does anything like that, you know. No, no, there's nothing out there. I mean, look at the guys with the backpacks, uh, anti-drone technology. And it makes sense. You know, you're out on uh, patrol or you're uh, flanking some tanks or you have a little uh, command station set up somewhere and the enemy is flying their drones around now trying to see where you're at. Well, I mean, drones are the enemy now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're going to... You, you know, that they're, they're, I'm sure they're using them like crazy in these battlefield exercises. And we know, you know, the Predator drones and stuff like that, firing these Hellfire missiles and stuff like stuff like that in anti-terrorism activity in the Middle East. That we know they're reported on the news and you can see them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what about the little stuff that you can't see, that you don't see yeah. and we just don't know about yet? Well, sure. If you fly one of these, even one of these little storeboard things we have today, a foot wide, super quiet, flying at 500 feet with a camera on it that takes beautiful pictures. Right. And they can fly for miles and miles and miles. They could come flying over you. See, oh, look at these guys down here. They're setting up for an attack. And then they go flying back. Exactly. You know, and I forget the name of the drone. uh, 
the one that the Iranians shot down a few years ago, but it's actually as big as a 737, too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No people on it, though. You know. Yeah, we got just, there's some heavy-duty stuff going on out there. By the way, on the lighter side of drone technology, Bill, I didn't tell you about this yet. Okay. But a couple of days ago, I'm out here on the coast of North Carolina. I'm walking down the beach, and I see a drone over a guy's head who's surf fishing. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what's going on there. And I walk over, and a guy has this drone, which I had heard about, but I'd never seen one yet where you basically hook your baited uh, line and sinker onto the drone and then fly the drone out several hundred yards over the ocean and it has a little servo in it and you release your uh, sinker and hook with bait on it and drop it into the ocean and then fly the drone back and land it and then you have your surf bait out there a couple of hundred yards into the ocean. <laughs> that is freaking fantastic. I'll try to get a picture of it if I see the guy again. But I stopped. I was talking to him. I'm like, so what would you do? You added a little servo to it? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, you catching big fish? He said, oh, I'm catching fish that nobody's catching by casting to them. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, he added the servo? I don't know if he added it <laughs> or if you can buy it with it. I know when I bought my drone a few years ago. Uh, which is a digi digi drone? Um, they didn't have anything like that, you know, available. But but it looked just like my digi drone, you know, about a foot wide. Well, you know, Kev, square. I had asked you not all that long ago uh, about flying a drone over the surf to look for the breaks in the sandbars. Right, right. And uh, there's no doubt about it that if you find the breaks in the bars where the tide is draining or like where the riptide occurs, you're going to find where the fish are sitting because yeah. that's that's like the mouth of a river. They're going to sit out there and wait for the clams and little bait fish to get sucked through that break in the bars and gobble them up. No doubt about it. And, yeah. you know, if you're looking at dark greenish blue water or you're fishing uh, certain times a day, you can't necessarily tell in the waves where those breaks are. Exactly. But if you had a drone overhead looking down, you could see where the current is pulling through in a much better way than you can with your eyes from the shore. No, no doubt about it. Yeah, uh, no so, doubt about it. Well, well, look into that, bro. Get back to me on that. I will, that, I will. And I'll, uh, I'll put a picture up on the website, too, if I catch this guy again with the... Uh, Drone caster. Wow, that is really cool. That's an oddity in and of itself. <laughs> it is. It's pretty wild to see. I was like, oh. Well, what do you say I dig into this little encounter yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's see what kind of oddity you have for us. All right. Now, this rather chilling discovery was brought to my attention by a fellow named Thomas Butler, a resident of the state of New Hampshire. Here is what Thomas and his hiking buddies discovered while working the area of the White Mountains, a place we're familiar with, right, Kev? Oh, I was just there last summer. Yep. Now, again, this, ca- this account, as you will soon hear, no Bigfoot was seen. I challenge you to think about what I'm about to say. And tell me what you think performed this nefarious act. 
When we first spoke, Bill, I told you that I was a member of a small group of men who had named ourselves the Hill Climbers. Our little club was a somewhat loose-knit, with our membership being about 20 people, give or take. There were, however, about seven of us who were hardcore, and unless sick, we were on every one of our planned hikes. So they had this little club, hiking club. All of the members knew each other, either from the workplace or as neighbors, being both men and women. It was on June 1st, 1989, that the event which I am about to share with you and your readers had occurred. There were nine of our club that day that had planned to hike up to and around a monument which is no longer there. This location was known as the Old Man of the Mountain, which, depending on what angle you looked at it from, appeared to be the side profile of a man's face protruding from the side of the mountain. It was tremendous and jutted out from the face of a granite cliff atop a small mountain. I say that it is no longer there because it has since fallen from the face of the cliff, having given way to time and erosion. We as a group were cutting a new trail through the forest, making our way up to the old man when we found ourselves walking along a steep incline covered in a lot of loose granite stones. As we were walking, one of the group lost her footing and went sliding down the slope a good 40 feet, coming to an abrupt stop. Of course, we were all asking, are you all right? And the usual things, after which we all began to make our way down to assist her. We always came equipped to the max, and this day was no exception. We had tied a length of climbing rope to a tree, and as two others of the group, and, and I and two others of the group made our way down to Katie. The others stayed where they were in case we needed any further assistance from above. Now, for those of your readers who are unfamiliar with the state of New Hampshire, it is known as the Granite State, and with good reason. Virtually everywhere you look or dig, you will either see or find granite. Katie was now laying on a pile of granite gravel. We made our way down to her while holding onto the rope, and thankfully it appeared as though she had just acquired some minor scrapes and bruises, she being more shook up than anything else. As we were crouched by her side, giving her some moral support and water, my eyes were drawn to a piece of red fabric hanging out from behind a slab of granite to my right. I think that I should pause for a moment to describe for you what I was seeing as well as the surrounding area. This mountain was made from granite. However, it was also covered in dense forest. Throughout the woods, there were areas of the mountain's granite that were exposed and or jutting out from the surrounding trees and bushes. 
There were also numerous areas where slides of rock had come down from above, such as the slide that Katie had just lost her footing on. In fact, if you pause to consider that the old man had fallen from the cliff face, this was an example of thousands of tons falling in one shot, which, if you were under it at the time, would have meant certain doom. So, we were kneeling by Katie, and I was looking at an area of granite that was protruding from the forest, which had a large notch carved out of it. Leaning against this large notch in the granite was a long and thick slab of granite that was the shape of, say, an arrowhead. It was about six feet tall and three feet wide, being narrow at the top and wider at the bottom. And from behind this granite arrowhead shape was hanging out a piece of red cloth. Seeing that Katie was all right, I pointed out to the group what I had seen and moved in for a closer look. The notch in the rock face that this slab was covering was about three feet deep. As I got right up close to it, I peered in through the dark, into the darkened cavity and saw what appeared to be a body. I immediately asked one of the group to bring down a flashlight so I could better see what it was I was looking at. Everyone, having now heard that I had seen a body, was more than a bit interested, even Katie, who was now getting to her feet. Now, John had come down with a flashlight and was now by my side, shining it into the cavity. Much to our horror, we were now viewing the torso of a human being that was missing its head and legs, the torso being covered in a tattered, long-sleeve, red flannel shirt and a sleeveless Harley-Davidson green fabric vest. The slab that was covering the body was not leaning against it, but rather seemed to have been placed over the notch to conceal the body. To me, there was no way this slab could have fallen from above and remained intact. Besides that, the slope that we were on had no overhead granite from which it could have fallen. There was no way to estimate the weight of this slab, but it had to have weighed a couple of thousand pounds, perfectly placed as if it was the covering of a tomb. The entire group had now descended via the rope to have a look at this discovery. We were now aghast at the sight that was before our eyes. A couple of the men had gathered some large limbs and commenced to pry the slab away from the notch, which fell down the slope, exposing the body. The torso was completely decomposed and the remaining garments were torn and tattered. There was also no odor whatsoever emanating from this makeshift tomb. My mind and those 
My mind and those of a number of others in the group were thinking that this body had been deliberately concealed in this location. There was no evidence of the legs, arms, and head anywhere to be seen. But who or what could have placed this heavy slab over this notch? That was the question. We left the body where it was and left the woods to get the authorities. That afternoon, the entire group, not wanting to leave, led the police back into the scene. We came in with lights and dogs and everything else you can imagine as we were sure we would be in there as night fell. There were photographs being taken and questions being asked, as you would well imagine, as to exactly what we had seen when we first came across the body. The sun was setting, and we began to make our way out of the woods while a number of the authorities remained at the scene. It was then that a loud howl was heard coming from the timber in the distance. It both sounded like and lasted in its duration, like that of a noontime fire siren, being prolonged and loud. It reminded me personally of the werewolf's howl in the movie An American Werewolf in London. It sent a chill down my spine. All of us looked at each other as we collectively said, What the hell was that? Weeks later, my friend John had breached the subject with me of his own thinking. That a Bigfoot had done this dirty deed. And that, in fact, he believed it was the same Bigfoot that we had heard as we were exiting the forest. Frankly, I just don't know what to say. What do you think of that, Kev? Mm, that's first off one of my favorite movies, American Werewolf in London. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy! But yeah, I mean, geez. So it's like uh, there. The, the, I mean, the theory is that like uh, Bigfoot attacked this guy, killed him, tore him up, and uh, then put him in this little bit of a tomb. Is that is that well, what we're saying? He said there was a notch. He's describing it as a notch kind of carved out naturally, uh, a natural indentation. <clears throat> and this slab, this extremely weighty slab, was leaning against it like a covering. And he, of course, made a couple of observations, which was very uh, astute of him, that there was nothing overhead visible where a slab like this could have fallen from. Uh, and... The fact that it was so weighty, uh, it was placed perfectly over the notch where this body was. So what what could have, how it could have been rendered where it was, mm. that was the big question. You know, it just didn't kind of, the puzzles didn't, puzzle pieces didn't yeah, fit yeah. together. Yeah, I mean, but it could have been there and then the body was hidden there too, right? I mean, we, either way kind of weird that pieces of a body end up behind this thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> look, if if the slab was there covering the notch and something went to hide this torso there, yeah. 
it would have to have pulled this arrowhead-shaped slab away, shoved the body in there, and then leaned the giant arrowhead-shaped slab back up against the opening. Yeah, yeah. Because the one thing up there in the White Mountains, you see these slabs of granite all over the place. Of course, you know, New Hampshire, they call it the granite state. Right. And uh, the glaciers, you know, came through there and just carved stuff up and moved these boulders, you know, that weigh as much as, you know, 50 automobiles. And you see some of them are like perched precariously and they've been that way for 100,000 years or whatever amount yeah. of time, yeah. you know, and they just don't move because they're so darn heavy. Now, the other so, thing the other thing I always take into consideration is the veracity of who the witnesses are. In this case, nine people. Yeah. They are a hiking club living in the Granite State. Right, right. So, so they know they know the area, they know the changes in the area, you know, et cetera. Right. So I, I have to take into consideration that these people were kind of really familiar with the lay of the land as far as, it's like talking to a hunter in Alberta. They kind of know what feels right and what doesn't feel right. Oh, no doubt about it, yeah. And it's not their first day at the rodeo. Yeah. So you have to take that, weigh that out when you're listening to an account or weighing out evidence or lack of evidence and say to yourself, well, this guy or this woman seems to really have a handle on what's going on here. And you have to you have to take that into you can't ignore that. No, no doubt about it. Uh, it's like if somebody was to talk to you or I about some type of aerial phenomena we saw. Yeah. Well, if you got to talking to me for thirty minutes, you'll find out I have considerable knowledge about aerial phenomena, and that would have to weigh heavily on what I'm saying. No doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, so, this is a very strange thing. Very strange indeed. And that's why I said in the beginning, it's up to the listeners to determine in their own hearts and minds, what do you think? And what about this howl at the end of this? Yeah, that's definitely a critical piece of evidence in the puzzle. Yeah, at the end of everything, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's just very, yeah, very... because I've been up there a lot, hiking around the White Mountains, and... Um, I've never heard a howl, you know, so yeah. that tells you, like, something's up. It's not like you're hearing howls when you're hiking around, whether it's coyotes or wolves or whatever. I, I've i never heard one. Yeah, and this was 1989, Kev. Yeah. And the guy described it as a prolonged noonday fire siren. Yeah. What the heck? What kind of description is that? You don't just pull yeah. that out of your hat. Right. That's a pretty, you know, exacting, he's trying to draw from his own archives and say, you know, what can I compare it to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Very yeah. cool. And also, you know, it's uh, you haven't been up there, Bill, since the old man fell down, right, no, from the mountain? No, Yeah, it's a little sad now because, you know, you remember all those memories of seeing that rock formation, the old man in the mountain. I think it's still on the license plates of New Hampshire uh, vehicles. And uh, then you go up there and you remember this is where it was, but you look up and there's nothing there. Now, they did, I did see last summer, they have like a, a viewing area along a pond that was never there, uh, the, the viewing area. And they've created 
some like Metalworker has put these uh, little shapes, probably about eight inches tall, a series of them on top of uh, metal poles, like steel poles, maybe 15 feet off the ground. And when you stand aligned with the poles, you can actually see where what the old man in the mountain looked like in its place up on the side of the mountain. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's very like... cool. You know, it's kind of artwork, sculpture, and uh, then uh, also showing what it looked like. Because if you never saw it before, it'd be hard to imagine what people are talking about. And you can stand in a certain place and look at these pieces of metal that are on top of these poles and align it directly where it was on the mountain. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah, that was always an interesting thing, you know, phenomena, you know. Yeah, yeah, very, very uh, cool uh, cool spot in the White Mountains up there. And you know uh, my faith, Kev. When I look at certain things, uh, yeah, they were formed in nature, uh, but I look at the moon at night, like this raging full moon you saw last night over the Atlantic, and I say to myself, there was a power that directed those meteors to hit the moon in certain ways over time that created that face that we see. Yeah. And we... How many years have people been referring to the man on the moon? Yeah. That face. I mean, yeah. it's it's unbelievable that that would be there and on that illuminated ball when it's full for all the world to see thousands and thousands of years looking up like, wow, look at that face. And those meteors impacted that big ball of cheese to make those? Yeah, Meteor, yeah. meteors hit cheese balls. It's a proven <laughs> fact. <coughs> Excuse me, if you can't tell, my allergies are going nuts today. <laughs> can't stop coughing and sneezing. Yeah, you and everybody else. Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, that, that wind I was telling you about, how it's been raging here in North Carolina, it's blowing all of the tree pollen off of the trees and into my lungs and nose. <laughs> yeah, and I was—I'll tell you—the past couple of weeks, I was getting itchy eyes. Oh yeah, I got that going. That's like yeah. unbelievable. Well, there you have it, folks. That was quite. Yeah, that's a great account from a hiking club up in uh, the Granite State of New Hampshire. Very cool. A little gruesome too, but it is gruesome, very man. Cool account. And listen, I—I I don't get what's with these bodies and limbs missing. Maybe the limb is an easy meal. It's like tearing a drumstick off a turkey. Mm. Chicken wings. Yeah, chicken wings. For a Bigfoot. Oh, All right, that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, let's go to listener mail, Bill. Our first letter. And, and as some of you may know, and I know you know, Bill, on our last podcast, we did have a bit of a contest that you launched. Uh-huh. And folks, this one's a pretty easy contest compared to some of them we've had in the past, so consider it a gift. Um, Bill asked you to describe the difference between a hurricane and a cyclone. Or typhoon. Uh, or typhoon, yeah. Right. And uh, our first letter that I'm going to read, I think, might be the winner, Bill. Uh, mm. But you can tell me if I am correct. Uh-huh. 
So uh, Joe writes in. Joe doesn't say where he is. Um, he says, hi, guys. I just listened to your most recent podcast, so I figured that I'd toss in my two cents worth. While I was serving on active duty in the U.S. Air Force, I experienced quite a few serious typhoons. I lived in Okinawa, Japan, which just so happens to be one of the most haunted places on Earth. In regards to your question, hurricanes and cyclones are the same thing, much like Bigfoot, Yeti, Sasquatch, or a wood booger. The origin of storm determines its classification or description. In the Atlantic, uh, Central North Pacific, and Eastern North Pacific regions, the term hurricane is used. The same type of storm in the Northwest Pacific is called a typhoon. In closing, there is a cryptid that hails from Okinawa called an Akamata. It's a serpent-like creature that can either be male or female. It's, type, uh, it's a type of yokai, which is a ghost, monster, or spirit in Japanese folklore. <laughs> no hairy man stories, but I figured that you guys would enjoy this nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Take care. Our whole family loves the show. Even the kids. So I guess there's this family of mysterious things in Japanese culture called yokai. Mm-hmm. And the akamata is one of the uh, yokai. Yeah. Well, Kev, we're going to have to look into that a little bit. That bears some investigation. Oh, yeah. A little akamata. Uh, and, you know, Bill, we, we uh, have a little soft spot for Okinawa because our dad... Uh, Ended up there in World War II in his uh, journeys across the Pacific in the Army Air Corps, uh, Okinawa. He spent some time there before the uh, eventual surrender of Japan. That's correct. And by the way, Joe, you are the winner of the signed book. Whoa. And as the, as the uh, contest rules go, you must be listening to this podcast to know that you're the winner. And then you will re-email me at BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com and identify yourself as Joe so-and-so, the winner of the book, and give me your address. And you can leave your phone number if you want. And by the way, uh, folks, when you write into us, after I'm done with you, the, the, the delete button is clicked. I don't save your addresses. We don't sell them. We don't keep them. You are, poof, gone. So, and by the way, I wasn't going to nitpick. We had so many entries. Uh, I can't tell you. I was simply looking for the answer that they're basically the same thing and call different things in different bodies of water around the globe. That's all I was looking for. It wasn't a trick question in any way. But, Joe, you are the winner. Congratulations, Joe. You have an autographed copy of a book coming your way, and I don't even have one. (laughs) And by the way, folks, if I have anything to do with the next contest, it will be a trick question. (laughs) Just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So what else do we got, Kev? All right. We got an email that came in from Lori from Maryland. And the subject is Dueo. Dueo. All right. And she says, hi, Bill and KJ, love your podcast and look forward to listening to it every week. On a recent trip home from taking our son to college, we were using an app called Hear Here. 
and it's spelled H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E. Okay, here. I hadn't heard of this, so it sounds pretty cool. As you pass locations, the app will send you a notification with a short recording that tells you about the location. Its snippets are about history of the location, interesting things about the location, etc. As we went through Frederick County, Maryland, a notification popped up about Dwayo, who happens to be the Maryland Wolfman. Wow. Yeah, we did an episode on the Goatman of Maryland, but I hadn't heard of Dwayo or the Maryland Wolfman. Maybe there's some type of overlap between... Mm. The same creature and people calling it two different things. Could be, could be. Um, And she writes, I couldn't believe it. Maryland has its very own cryptid. Well, you got more than one cryptid over there. (laughs) And uh, she said, I grew up and currently live only about an hour from the places mentioned in the article. And I visited the park several times. This is the park where Dueo is is, uh, most often sighted. Mm Mm-hmm. As a teacher, I've taken students on a field trip to these locations, but I never heard about Dueo before, and I thought I'd share the story of this cryptid with the both of you. Have a great week, Lori from Maryland. Wow. He signed it in the park. I wonder if he's barbecuing. Could be. Having a little (laughs) party with the family. Under a full moon. Dwayo Jr. and Dwayo Sr. Maybe with Dogman and a special appearance from the Goatman of Maryland. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. You know, there's, some, there's weirdness going on all over the place, I'll oh, tell no you. Doubt about it. No doubt about it. You, you know, if you engage yourself in conversations with enough people, you're going to find that there's sufficient goings-on everywhere to keep you quite busy. Uh, you're going to hear stories of ghosts. Uh, I have a number of co-workers. Uh, my one co-worker lived in, in a haunted house in New Jersey for years and stayed there. Uh, <laughs> and when she left with her son, uh, years later, she was kind of talking with him about it a little bit. Mom, he, he was like, Mom, you have no idea the stuff that was going in that house, on in that house when you were out working. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine that, Kevin, staying there? I cannot. I was going to ask you before you told me that part if she was actually haunting the house. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, I I, I just don't get that. But that's just one example. I mean, there's so much stuff if you engage people and they feel comfortable talking to you like they're not going to be the victim of ridicule. Uh, they'll open up to you, and you're going to freaking find that there's a lot of things going on across these states of ours uh, that you had no idea of before you started conversing with people. So that's, uh, you know, folks, if you've seen something, say something. And you can talk to me free of charge, free of ridicule, any time you want. Yeah, don't don't talk to me because you would be subject of ridicule potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Just pointing that out. You know, you sound a little stupid. Have you been drinking? <laughs> I hope you've been drinking. You're you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> All right, Bill, and our last note comes in from Michael. And Michael doesn't say where he's from, 
But he talks about the fact that he was doing some research on the web and uh, listening to some different podcasts like our own and reading some stuff. And uh, he wanted to know um, if, if it's possible that Bigfoot and Dogman have interactions. Because in one of these episodes or articles he was reading, uh, someone talked about being the witness uh, that when they were hiking in New Mexico or in Arizona, he's not sure, but he that this individual saw what looked like a Bigfoot giving orders to a dogman as they were stalking a pair of women hiking on the trail of, ahead of them. Wow! So pretty wild. I like you know what do you what do you think, Bill? Uh, is uh, is a dog? Could a dogman be working in? A team with a Bigfoot, and then would the Dogman, in fact, be potentially taking orders, a lower rank than the Hairy Man? Kev, you know, I don't know what to make of these things. I think the Dogman is a demonic entity. I do, too. I was thinking like the Dogman came out of that haunted house that your friend was living in. Yeah, I mean, I I am really on board that Dogman is a demon uh, and you know, I believe that some of these Bigfoot sightings are of the demonic as well. So I've stated that emphatically many times. Hmm. I will say this. I do have an account that we will get to over time when I can't tell you uh, where a witness saw a Bigfoot with a wolf toting along with it. Oh, yeah, I think we did that one. Did we? Yeah, we did that one. Okay. The wolf was kind of trailing along. But that's easier to believe, you know, because the wolf could just be a following along to pick up the scraps. Right, and kind yeah. of just uh, the Bigfoot is not inclined to smash it or eat it. It's maybe grown accustomed to it. Uh, who knows? We don't have answers for these. You know, I mean, we have pets, right? Yeah. And maybe this Bigfoot just tailed along, like you took it in. I, I don't know. I have no answers for that. But this dog man talking to a Bigfoot, uh, while these uh, people were hiking around, I mean that's that's a really bizarre. Yeah, I've I've never heard anything like that, and I, you know it's a little, little ridiculous. But I'm not ridiculing. You know, <laughs> I'd be if I saw it on a hike, I'd be thinking, okay, I'm looking uh, at something demonic, or I'm hallucinating, <laughs> or I shouldn't have eaten that wild mushroom along the trail back there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now for a brief interlude. <laughs> I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it, Bill. And by the way, just to be clear, the dog man that you heard earlier in this episode outside of my studio here, he's not demonic. He's actually pretty cute. Uh, big young beast. What kind um, of what kind of dog man is it? I, you know, I don't know what breed of dog it is. They're like these giant furry dogs that look a little bit like a polar bear. Oh. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Well, but, let's let's call him a polar bear dog. Yeah, that's what I call him. <laughs> but that's it, Bill. Good episode. And by the way, folks, when you listen to this, it will likely be Easter. So we do want to wish you and your families a very happy Easter. Yes, uh, my sentiments exactly, Kev. And uh, funny that we should be talking about a supposed tomb covered with a granite slab. Uh, there was another tomb 
where a stone was rolled away. And that's why we celebrate Easter. And by the way, folks, if you should be hiking around in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, you better remember one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight and happy Easter. Thank <laughs> you.